The Society of Economic Geologists is thrilled to be hosting the SEG 2024 conference from the 27th to the 30th of September in Windhoek, Namibia, a country known for its spectacular geology and unique ore deposits. You can find out more at segweb.org slash seg-2024 for all the conference themes, dates, workshops, field trips, and more. Abstracts are now open until the 22nd of April. So come join us in Windhoek for what promises to be a geologic adventure in a country that is leading the way in mineral resource sustainability on the African continent. See you there. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Discovery to Recovery, where we bring you geoscience stories from the world of ore deposits. This podcast is a partnership between the Society of Economic Geologists and ALS Goldspot. You can listen on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and more. My name is Aisha Ahmed, Senior Geochemist at Tech Resources, and I'm your host for this week's episode. So far this season, the SEG podcast team has tackled some pretty technical topics in geoscience, from carbonatite formation to fluid dynamics to deconstructing porphyry systems. For this week's episode, we're going to look at a different aspect of the geosciences, drilling. As geologists or geoscientists, we rely heavily on drill core and chips to make interpretations. We create geological models, we create resource estimates. So what does the current drilling landscape look like and where are we heading as an industry? Discovery to Recovery was on the floor at this year's AME Roundup Conference in Vancouver. We asked attendees if they could change anything in drilling, what would they change? That's a, that's a big that's one. That's a big question. Oh, give me a moment to think about that. That's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> that's a tough question. Aww. Give me a hot second. All right. I'd like some drillers to listen to what I say. <laughs> Once people did have a hot second to think about it, the answers were pretty insightful. We'll be featuring a number of these little tidbits throughout this episode, and here are a few now. No, if I could change anything in exploration drilling, it would be trying to make it all happen faster, increase production, and the costs if I could. <laughs> yeah. Drilling to drill, it should be drilling to do it with a purpose and, and have that be, you know, make it successful from the start. And I think that includes, you know, creating a, the proper team and the proper relationships with communities and with people. So I'd probably say that one. Oh, the easy answer would be to start collecting all of the measure wall drilling properties that we collect in, say, like blast holes at a mine, just collecting that data in situ without adding instruments that likely get stuck. Assay turnaround, oriented core, seismic. Drill more would be the number one thing. Drill more and analyze more for everything. Speed of drilling. I would change many things, but I would improve digital data collection downhole. If I could change something tomorrow, it would be eliminate any injuries, all injuries in the drilling industry. I want to see more physical property data collected. Widespread adoption of combo rigs, RC to core rigs. Unfortunately, we don't have the time on today's episode to address all of these issues, but we'll tackle some of them and we'll start by getting an introduction to the mechanics of drilling from our first guest. My name is Kevin Slemko. I am the Corporate Business Development Manager for Major Drilling, and I am currently located in Salt Lake City, Utah. We're the second largest drilling company in the world. Uh, we have over 3,800 employees. We have branches all over the world. So how did you get into this position on more on the corporate side of things? Well, it's been an adventurous life and career. I'm 
a Canadian born in Whitehorse, Yukon. My parents settled down in Pickle Lake, a small bush plane in mining town in Northwestern Ontario. I actually wanted to be a bush pilot. I took flying lessons when I was in high school, studied aircraft maintenance in college. I ended up failing the commercial pilot's license because of my vision. So I was an underground miner for about five years, then became a driller, worked in many mines across Canada, the US and Mexico. I worked myself up the ranks to supervisor, project manager, ops manager, and to my current position in business development. So it's been a 32-year career so far and grateful for all my opportunities. Really interesting to hear how people's career paths can change unexpectedly, but then be so successful. A lot of our listeners may be early career researchers or, or students. Some of them are more on the academic side of research where there hasn't been a lot of exposure to being in the field where drilling actually occurs. So we're hoping to just set the stage a little bit with some, some basics on the drilling process. How do we actually get samples out of the ground for exploration and mining. The most common types of drilling in the industry are percussive, RC, and core, also known as diamond drilling. Percussive is the most common in mining application and the most economical way of sampling because they're used in combination with production blast hole processes and are typically shallow. At the same time, it is the least accurate because of cross-contamination. Because the penetration is from percussion energy through the rod string to the bit and the cuttings or chips are flushed out with compressed air and water between the drill pipe and the hole, but mostly it's generally used for verifying grade. Next one is RC or reverse circulation using rotation and percussion energy, but with utilizing dual wall drill pipe. So the compressed air is pumped down between the outer pipe and their inner tube to a pneumatic hammer, which is at the end of the drill string and has an internal piston that hits the bit. This makes it more efficient than top hammer drilling and can reach longer depths. The cuttings are flushed up the inner tube to a cyclone and splitter into sample bags. Extremely reduces cross-contamination for more accurate samples and can reach depths of over a thousand meters. And the depths are uh, limited because of the loss of air efficiencies. Um, moving on to diamond drilling. Penetration is acquired by using high-speed rotation and downward pressure on commercial grade diamond impregnated bits. The bitten rods are hollow, so the rock core sample can be fed into the rod and inner tube and barrel. After the rod length has been completed, typically three or six meters for surface and one and a half to three meters for underground, a wire line is lowered or pumped, depending if it is an up or down hole, into the rod string to retrieve the core barrel assembly and core sample. Another core barrel is installed to the bottom of the hole, a rod is added, and the cycle begins again. This type of drilling provides geologists with the opportunity to visually analyze samples since an undisturbed core structure provides a complete picture of the structure and rock occurrence. As for the depths, our rigs range in many depth capabilities from 30 meters to over 3,000 meters. Uh, we broke our own Canadian record for the longest diamond drill hole at 3,467 meters in 2020. And we also broke the record in Mongolia for the longest PQ hole, which, as you know, is the largest diameter diamond drilling hole at over 2,200 meters. So pretty significant milestones there. That's amazing. Your Canadian record, are you allowed to share where that was? Yeah. 
we marketed the heck out of it when we did it. So it was <laughs> it was for Cisco at the oh, at the uh, windfall the windfall project at the windfall project, correct? So essentially, from percussion, we're getting a combination of powder and chips, and the same with reverse circulation drilling. And in diamond, we're getting ideally these nice long sticks of core. And I know every geologist wants diamond drill core. That is the um, Mercedes-Benz of drilling. But as you indicated, it's quite a bit more expensive. So what are we talking about here? Is it order of magnitude difference between diamond and RC or is the, the price closer? The magnitude between costs is significant because core drilling is a lot slower, RC is faster, percussive is even faster, but you're getting that cross-contamination. There's so many variables. Okay. So what are some of those variables that go into the budgeting process? When a geologist or a group is thinking about planning a drill program, what will contribute to increasing or decreasing the price of a program? Right. Well, location, of course, because there's permits, customs, importation of equipment, work visas if required, hole size. Then we move on with the overburden, whether it's thickness, composition, sand or gravel, clay, boulders. Does it need to be sealed? Can we leave the casing in the hole? And for geology, you know, like fault zones or shear zones, whether there's cavities, excessive water flows, gas pockets, permafrost, and of course, distance to water. So the nearest water source. Of course. Yeah, whether you can just hook up a pump or you actually have to truck in water. So there's definitely more cost between a water truck and personnel to just hooking up a pump in a hole somewhere. Okay, so stating the obvious, the more remote uh, of a location that you are, the more expensive a drill program is going to be. Yes, remote and depending on the weather as well. So the colder will increase as well because you're needing more fuels to keep the water from freezing, from keeping the crews warm, and then the lack of daylight in the winter months. Yeah, of course. Okay, so if we're trying to find the next porphyry copper deposit, we need to make sure it's in a well-populated area with easy transport, easy access access in the the middle latitudes <laughs> and with easy access to water. Okay, we'll add that to the exploration list. No, I wouldn't mind talking about directional drilling a little bit. I think this is pretty amazing for people who are not familiar with drilling. When I think about drilling, at least in the past, it's drilling a straight hole. Of course, it can be angled from surface, but you know, you're planning on drilling something that's relatively straight, a line in space. So this concept that you can actually bend the hole and lift it in order to hit a target is it's pretty cool, I think. So can you tell us what directional drilling looks like directional drilling is a method of steering a hole to a desired target so typically used for deep holes where a deviation occurs and as you mentioned when branching off a parent hole we use two different processes one is motorized directional uh, has great results for hitting deep targets we would survey the hole periodically and if the hole is deviating a decision is made whether we use the motor which is typically determined by the geologist the motor will have a slight bend in it determined by the motoring tech on site we would have to remove all the drill pipe to install the motor on the end of the drill string. We cannot turn the rods while lowering the hole to keep it orientated. 
After reaching the bottom, the motor is powered by pumping drilling fluids down the rods and the bit is the only thing that is turning. With that slight bend in the motor, it should start cutting the hole back on target. We would survey for confirmation after the hole is back on track. We would pull the rods and remove the motor and continue conventional diamond drilling unless another deviation has occurred. What is the accuracy on this? You don't have to give me an exact number, but I mean, are you usually within a degree of where you want to go or in 20 meters of your target? Or does your target have to be pretty wide when you're using this approach? No, we've seen both where, you know, our customers will allow us a bigger target and some went a pretty close target where we can only be off a couple of degrees. So that's why I was saying that we get pretty good results with the, uh, the motorized tool because we can continue to check a survey and check the hole and then keep adding the motor if necessary to keep us on track. Okay, so I I imagine this would be very helpful more in the resource drilling side of things where the targets you're trying to drill are relatively close together, so not in the exploration space where your holes are are a kilometer apart. There must also be a trade-off between time and and cost, right? So maybe instead of drilling five 1,000-meter holes, you're drilling one parent hole and four wedges off of that hole, right? But when you're drilling the wedge, you're not getting the same productivity that you might if you were drilling a normal parrot hole. Is that correct? And what is the kind of standby time? How long does it take to actually get that lift from the motorized bit? Well, with the motorized bit, it all determines how much we let it deviate. So sometimes the geologist will let it deviate. Maybe it'll migrate back, so we'll keep an eye on it. And if it is small adjustments, then it's the standby time isn't too bad. There are some motors that actually give you a core sample when you motor. The ones we use do not. So we do lose a core, but typically it's above uh, the ore body when we're starting to, to branch off. So yeah, as long as we're keeping an eye on it and it's smaller adjustments, the standby time isn't too much. But as you mentioned, instead of drilling all these multiple long depth holes, we can branch off at the parent hole and that reduces the cost of getting down to that uh, to that area. I can explain a little bit more on wedging if you like. Please. Yep. For wedging, which is a more economical way of steering, uses exactly what it states, a metal angled wedge. If you're seeing a significant hole deviation and the decision was to get it back on course, we would pull the rods, lower the wedge. When the wedge is at the desired depth, you would rotate the rods, which would break the copper pins and secure the bull nose into position. And that's what locks the bottom of the, the wedge. After rotating, you should be disengaged from the bull nose. You would use a survey tool to position the wedge to the desired orientation. Then add feed force, no rotation, until the connection breaks and the wedge is permanently installed. You would pull the rods, add the bit. Now the bit will deviate from the wedge, getting it back on target. Okay, so this is more economical, but did you also say it's potentially less accurate or is it as effective as a motorized bit? It's not as effective. That's just what you could kind of use if they're giving us a bigger target. Okay. It's faster and the speed and the cost of the tool makes it more economical. So yeah, if they give us a broader target, they're more than happy with us using a wedge instead of a motor. Maybe now we can get into the new drilling technology or what has come on the market recently or what does major drilling see as being in the future space of drilling that, that would be of benefit to the explorationist or the miner? 
Innovations is about keeping our people safe and increasing efficiencies. My favorite new tech would be hands-free rod handling, digitization, automation, and autonomous equipment. Another one we're developing is installing sensors and flow meters to measure and track drilling parameters and analytics, which will optimize drilling efficiencies and also speed up training as well. Yeah, I would love to touch on this last point of safety, because I think when most people imagine the job of being a driller or an offsider, there's a lot of manual labor involved. And one of these technologies that you're talking about, the automated rod handler, can you expand a little bit on that? And what gap is that filling? Yeah, because there's a lot of new equipment coming out with the rod handlers, but we have 600 rigs in our fleet. So for us to change out a substantial number of rigs to bring in these new equipment wouldn't be cost effective. So we're trying to find other ways of doing that. And so our innovation group came up with a totally separate rod handler. So it's on a skid and you could just bring it up to any drill and it will load a drill into a presenter and then that brings it to the mast and up and down. And then as soon as you move the first rod up, you hit a learn button. So that will automatically load it to the same position. So this is all new right now. We're just testing it uh, with a customer right now. I know in the production environment, this is starting to become a bit more common where you're seeing automated percussion drilling or even semi-automated. Do you see diamond drilling becoming automated or remotely controlled anytime soon? I don't know about anytime soon, but I definitely see it coming down the pipeline. We, we do percussive drilling underground and we do have some autonomous equipment. So we know some of it. And also our new team out in Australia, they have a new RC rig that's semi-autonomous and may turn into a fully autonomous drilling rig. So we're kind of excited about that. We actually have the rig manufacturer going down to see what we have done in-house because it's pretty impressive what the team has done there. So from that RC aspect, I do see it slowly sliding over to the uh, the diamond drilling side. As I mentioned, we're the semi-autonomous is probably will be the next part and then we'll see what goes from there. But of course, there's a cost to all this and we have to pass this cost on to customers, you know, for us to make money as well. So it, with the seniors, the demand is definitely higher for these technologies, but they're also willing to pay for it as well. So it's a win-win for both of us. Well, I mean, I can imagine why when, when I think about, you know, exploration or, or mining projects, drilling is one of the highest risk activities that we undertake. And there, you know, is the potential for, for severe injury, you know, in this process. So removing the the person from from drilling, whether that person takes on another role, right, in this semi-autonomous process, I can see that of being of real interest to to the majors. Just to circle back, can you paint a bit of a picture of what semi-autonomous RC drilling looks like? Is there somebody sitting in a, a truck cab operating remotely the rig or is it programmed? Like what, what does that look like? Well, it's almost like the rod handler I mentioned. Once you set it up to learn a certain position, now it's just hitting a button. So that thing is operating by itself. So that's semi-autonomous, bringing it in. We still have the driller operating, but we do have a remote as well. So we could be completely away from the rig, the driller, mm. and including the helper or the driller assistant. 
with their controls as well. So they're the ones that would make the machine learn. And then after that, it's just pushing one button and it automatically does it. Okay. Do you see this as being something that is a game changer for the northern latitudes, potentially, like going back to what we were talking about before, extreme cold or where we have lack of daylight for 24 hours? Is this the future for those areas? Yeah, that would be a big challenge. And that's a good question because we did have these big tarps that went over the top of the rig, but our current rod handling that we have, which stacks the rods vertically, we have a hard time with that tarp. And then as soon as you put a hole in that with the wind, it's inefficient. So I actually talked to our general manager yesterday about this and him and another area manager are coming up with some kind of innovation so we can utilize a rod handler under some type of covering. So I don't know what they have up their sleeve, but I'm very interested to hear what they come up with. I spent about 10, 15 years being pretty on the rig and pretty involved, but there was always um, a distance, you know, the drillers understood what they were doing, the geologists understood what they were doing, and there was a mutual respect for those different disciplines. What I see now is a lot more crossover, generally one way, where geologists are getting a lot more involved in being on the rig and understanding how the drills work, the fluids, the muds that are used, optimizing penetration rates, talking about bits. Do you see that as a, as a positive that you're getting more engagement from the clients? No, it's a great question. And I think it's a win-win because not only can geologists learn of what we're doing on the drilling processes, at the same time, our drillers can learn the geology of it, of what we're looking for, for the customer. So I actually do a presentation with the CMU class. Well, I was before COVID. And that was my topic all the time because I'm talking to young geologists and I'm trying to tell them that instead of having this separate worlds between driller and geologists, geologists to try making it cohesive. And it's just a win-win for both of, of learning each other's processes and, and what we're doing because it's a team work. Thank you so much, Kevin, for joining us today and, and talking about the importance of the relationship between the geologist and the driller. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It was a great topic and it's good to share all this knowledge to everybody. Let's go back to the floor for a few more comments that relate to our next guest. I think more people should do oriented core. I think everyone should do oriented core. I'm just thinking, like, I want to be looking at the core in the core box exactly as it was in the ground. Well, there's some fantastic things we're doing now with oriented core, and the, the products that you can get out of that are you know, extremely useful to us in our exploration. Hello, my name is Chris Brown. I'm the CEO, principal consultant of Oriented Targeting Solutions. I formed this company about six years ago, and um, it was after about 25 years working in mining exploration. I started out in the industry as a grunt really uh, collecting soil samples in Alaska and progressed eventually into going back to college, getting a geological engineering degree, and then working, continuing to work in the mainly exploration industry, where I eventually got into drilling oriented core through a mentor I worked with named Russell Myers around 2011. And um, we had realized the value of structural data being prospectors and mappers in the field back in the day. And when we got the opportunity to apply this to core drilling, and uh, it was something that was exciting and something we felt was needed in the industry. I actually went to South Africa with Russell Myers, and he's a great man. We rode in a car together. I drove him around South Africa in a small Toyota Tercel. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, so it, yeah, it's a small world. Yeah, he was the 
best mentor that I ever had in the industry. I was very lucky to work with him. I jumped at the opportunity to do so. I actually left a very comfortable position also working with great people. And that guy taught me quite a bit about geology, geochemistry, structural geology. And so I was just like a sponge soaking up everything that I could. As you've mentioned, you're in the business of Oriented Core. And some of our listeners probably don't even know what Oriented Core is. So can you give us an introduction to what it is, why we collect it, and how we collect it. Well, yeah, sure. So Oriented Core tools have been around for decades. I mean, the technology started off with really simple methods, uh, sending a spear down the drill tube and impinging, you know, a point on the top of a core run that was about to be extracted. This kind of, you know, led into development later on of accelerometer sensors, which are the same sensors that are in your smartphones when you turn the screen and it's orienting the screen relative to the viewer. It's the sensor that detects the acceleration vector of gravity. And so if we can send that down the drill string, then as the core goes into the drill tube, we can actually mark that point where, where that represents the direction of gravity on the core. And then any planar feature that that core intercepts, such such as faults, veins, fabrics, things like that can then be related to the gravity direction. And, and so that's really, you know, once that was developed, uh, became a, a system that was efficient to allow geologists to collect structural data and get these planar features defined and mapped and modeled. And so there's other techniques to get structural data from uh, drill core. There's televiewers as well, which take pictures down hole or send an acoustic wave into the rock mass. And so those tools are around also, but they're more expensive. You usually need to get a contractor to come out. And if the holes are bridged at all downhole, then you can't send that tool any further and you lose all the structural data for the rest of the hole. Whereas with Dorian Core, the tools fit in a briefcase. You can put them on a helicopter and take them out to a drill rig that's remote. And uh, you get a chance to get orientation with every run of core that's being drilled. So you get a marking on the core that is telling you a, a specific orientation or how do you then assign that orientation to the rest of your core that doesn't have that marking? Okay. So, you know, the problem with oriented core is that, of course, to take that mark that's representing gravity that's on the downhole end of a run that's being drilled, you need to then draw that line in the uphole direction across the rest of the core, but that core has to lock together. And so a lot of times uh, in poor rock conditions, the, the core can be rubbly. You can run into, you know, large areas of fault gouge where you really shouldn't be drawing that line across because it's almost worse having a line in the wrong position on the core than not having a line at all. And so usually when we're training in the field, we're training people where not to draw an orientation line. And so as that line is drawn up, what we do is for a quality control parameters is we uh, will then compare the line from one mark to another mark from another drill that's been drilled. And so basically each new run of core that's being drilled and a run of core is when you fill the tube and then the drillers retrieve that tube up to the surface and then they send another tube down and drill another one. And so each one of these runs is an independent test from a quality perspective. We're trying to test one test against another test. 
what's the probability that these two marks are going to meet from two independent tests. And statistically, it's one in 360 degrees. It's a 0.2% probability of being a random event. And so that's kind of how we keep control of the quality control. We're not going to get two tests testing against each other for every time. But if we can get enough of them in a one hole that's being drilled, then we can statistically understand the quality of the runs that aren't testing against other tests, what we call neutral data. Talk about going down a rabbit hole there. No, this isn't a rabbit hole. I think this is really important because, you know, most of my experience with Oriented Core was from about 15 years ago. And, you know, one of the major sources of error was piecing things back together. And and sometimes you intersect a zone of rubble and you have betting on one side and betting on another. And you really want to just keep that line going because what are the chances that your betting has, you know, completely changed orientations over the course of 50 centimeters. But does oriented core cost more than unoriented core? Well, it's definitely going to cost more. I'll say off the cuff that you can expect a 5% increase in you know the budget but really what happens is with most people we work with they once they realize the value of the data they end up putting more effort in collecting that data because it's so powerful and it, it totally makes the original cost of doing the orientation irrelevant i mean for instance if you can drill one drill hole to define planar features in a rock mass without having to drill two extra holes to get a three-point solution on a plane then all you have to do is save one hole from being unnecessarily drilled and the cost savings totally blow away any of the effort and, and costs that were associated with the core orientation. What about time? Does it take a significant extra amount of time to send that tool down with every run or is that minimal? No, that's minimal. I mean, most oriented core tools that are available today are designed to keep the productivity up. And that's always what we're trying to do when we're training as well. I mean, we don't want to bog people down. There's a sweet spot where we can keep productivity up and get a good product. And we've proven that statistically with a lot of the drilling companies that we've worked with over time. So um, as far as the drilling process goes, like I said, the tools are, are made so that when a run gets pulled up, you can send another tube down and keep drilling. And the other time component is in the core shack you know, how much time is it going to take to log structure, but logging structure is so important. We we think that maybe some of the other logging that's being done, if you have a set amount of time, maybe we can sacrifice some other things because the structural data is so powerful. I'm an old project manager, so I really am sensitive towards the fact that the reality on the ground is that a lot of projects are running with limited time, budget, personnel. And so we don't want to bog people down in the core shack either. And one of the ways that we get around this is through split tube drilling. So we suggest people use a double tube to drill. And when that happens, when they pump that tube out at the rig, it has a clamshell and, it op- and the core gets opened up and you can the core is basically held in a long cradle. And so if we can get as much orientation line on the core at that time when the core is in the most pristine condition that it's ever going to be in, we save a lot of time in the core shop putting Humpty Dumpty back together again and fitting core pieces back together and drawing lines of core. I mean, you talked about, you know, the impact of, of collecting this data. And I guess the question that I'm going to ask is pretty general and it relates to really how important structural geology is to all the different types of ore deposits that, that we exploit. But is oriented core more important in certain deposit environments than others? So I'm thinking, you know, an undeformed porphyry environment where there's a lot more 
randomness associated with it than something like a sheer hosted gold system. Yes, certainly. I mean, I think there's are people out there in the industry that will ask the question, why are you drilling Orient Core in a porphyry system? It's just chaotic stock work. But I think we've probably processed more of this data than I can maybe safely say anybody in the world. We see all kinds of order in porphyry systems. I've got an example of a system in British Columbia where people had asked that same question, why are you doing this? And as we started plotting up the data for veins with copper sulfides, we could see that the original plan was to chase a northwest trending mag high. And uh, we could see that there were two conjugate sets of veins that were fairly organized, dipping at each other that had more of a north-south trend in the system. And as we started uh, merging uh, geochemistry data and looking at that, it looked like there was this uh, organized uh, grade control, which was then followed up and targeted and basically ended up generating one of the highest grade intercepts on the TSX for Q1 2019. Well, maybe we can expand a little bit on what the, the kind of theme that I got from what you were talking about before, which is integration of structural data and, and oriented core data with other data sets to, to make interpretations. You've collected this good structural data, you've pieced everything, all the core back together. What kind of data are you actually collecting from the core? And then how are you visualizing this and how are you integrating it with other data sets? So I'm glad you asked that question because once we get past the quality control and the training on the process, that's the next place that we focus on is the database structure. And so in the metadata that's collected with structural data. So basically we're getting clients to get their data into a relational database structure. If you're logging a vein or a fault, there's pieces of metadata that are really important for us to have the ability to attach the relationship of that, those structures to other geological parameters that we care about. Like, let's say if we're logging veins, we're going to want to know the assemblage. We're going to want to have the ability to, you know, let's say we're driven, drilling in the Abitibi and we drill through 10,000 calcite veins and maybe 3% of the veins have quartz arsenopyrite assemblage. We're going to want to have the ability in the database to turn off the calcite veins and look at the things that that we consider pathfinders or vectors towards mineralization controls. Scale is another thing. We want to know how big things are. So that's another column in a database. In a database, you know, rows are records, columns are attributes. And so our metadata is held in these attributes. And so we can look at styles, hair genetic kinds of pieces of information, things like that. And so that's not the end of the story. You know, the beauty of this structural data that we're collecting with Oriented Core is that it's considered point data. So each structure that we're measuring is occurring at a specific depth in a specific hole. And so what happens later is then we can join these points into many different interval-based data types. We can, you know, geochemistry, lithology logging, alteration, MAG-SAS, RQD, there's all kinds of things that we join this data to, mineralization logs, things like that. So then we can take a database, let's say you have 150 drill holes with 10,000 of these structures that have been measured, joined up with the interval-based data. Then we can rapidly interrogate that database and devise a query. We can ask that database a geological question, something like in holes A, B, C, D, and F, what are the veins with a certain assemblage that I like in a certain lithology in samples over half a gram per ton gold that are maybe over 10 centimeters wide, you can devise the question however you want. What's just that population doing? And turn off all the other data and look at that on a stereo net. 
And then we can look at these things on stereo nets and say, hey, look, it looks like there's a preferential orientation in this area. But the next question is, how is that distributed in 3D space? You know, because are these points just scattered all over God's creation or are they forming a, an organized zone that we can model with meshes and target in 3D? And so that's where we're, once we get quality control pinned down, then we've got the power to do all these other things that are super important for exploration. Let's maybe just step back one step here and, and talk a little bit about data collection on the core. Two, two questions on this. Do you have a specific tool or method for collecting um, structural data on core or is it, you know, goniometer and old school manual methods? I don't think there's one shoe that fits all. We like to work with all kinds of measurement tools. We split them into manual measurements versus laser-based measurements, like the IQ logger that reflexes develop, wraparound protractors, goniometers, canometers, things like that. The biggest thing that we care about in our training is to get the users to understand the definitions of alphas and betas. And so those are the two measurement parameters that are measured to make the structure oriented. The alpha is the angle to the core axis, and the beta is the relationship of the planar feature to the orientation line. And so we want, when we train, we pound into people's heads for people to know those definitions so well that when they see a structure in the core, they know what the alpha and beta is supposed to be before they even measure it. Ballpark. And you'd be surprised how many core shacks we visit all over the world or data that we get from core shacks where that was not understood. From what I understand and, and having dealt with this data and collected the data, I think the most common is getting, you know, an orientation that is essentially 180 degrees off, right? Yeah. Or like a co complete opposite to what it should be just because maybe the goniometer was flipped upside down when it was exactly. placed onto the core, right? So yeah. things to watch out for. Yeah, we see that all, you know, quite a bit. I mean, what What's really important is that core photos are taken correctly with the orientation lines pointing straight up. And so we talk to a lot of people about the AI that's being developed now so that there's optical scanning and there's uh, machine learning that's attacking the logging of structures by just uh, recognizing the elliptical traces in core photos and comparing that to the orientation line. And so that's the future. That's the next two to five years. So if we can see the orientation lines in the core photos and we have questions whether data is suspect, we can go back and validate and verify through the core photos as long as we can see the structure that's being measured and see the orientation line. So I'm hoping we can do a little bit of a case study now. It's really a story, just a story. I think one of the best ones to talk about would be the North Bullfrog Project in uh, Southern Nevada. Uh, I was working with Russell Myers at the time, and we had drilled that area extensively for years with RC. And it's a low sulfidation system in, in Southern Nevada. And there was a north-south trending, east-dipping normal fault called the Liberator Fault, which was known to be mineralized. There were historic workings on this structure. And this had been peppered with RC holes. And, you know, you would approach that in the hanging wall and go into the foot wall. And anytime you would get some interesting geochemistry, you would just assume that this was associated with the Liberator Fault, which is east-dipping, steeply east-dipping. There was actually a permitting issue Back in the day, I guess I'm jumping forward a little bit. But what happened is we decided to go to core. And so we drilled oriented core and drilled similar holes like these RC holes, penetrating the liberator fault, going into the foot wall. But then we started noticing something different in the first oriented core hole. We noticed that things were behaving normally with the steep east dip, but 
as we got into the foot wall, we found some very small centimeter scale uh, chalcedonic quartz veins with visible gold in them that were actually dipping steeply in the opposite direction to the west. And because of this permitting issue, we couldn't drill any more holes from that area, but there was a road intersection further to the west we could set a rig on. And so we drilled another oriented hole drilled to the east. All these other holes were drilled to the west. And we discovered a, a very large, significant, uh, low sulfidation epithermal vein in the foot wall of this Liberator fault that was actually dipping to the west. And there were RC holes that had been drilled in years past that had come within 10 meters of hitting this thing, but nobody had ever hit it. And so this radically changed everything on that project. And what was funny was when you hit a big structure like that, you know, the next question is, do we step off to the left or to the right? And so <laughs> we had taken yeah. pulps and cuttings from RC holes in the area and processed them with TerraSpec looking for well crystallized illite. And that gave us a vector to go to the north. And we continued to drill oriented core going to the north and ended up this brought about a half a million ounces of gold into the resource. Uh, it was about 800 meter long structure at times up to 20, 25 meters in width of solid vein banded, you know, classic epithermal textures. But at the end, once this thing was all drilled out, we realized that that turn to the north was correct because it actually died off to the south. No, oh, perfect. And this was during a low point in the industry when you could not waste money drilling duster holes. And that's why we developed this oriented core workflows, because it was out of times of desperation when we would get $2 million, $3 million, drill 15 holes, got to have a press release. If you didn't generate the press release, you would get no more financing. You'd be dead in the water. And you're watching all your buddies in the industry getting laid off. And uh, it's pretty scary. So we had to be able to drill a hole, do the QAQC on the orientation, and get this information plotted, get it into 3D. And as we were pulling the rods for the hole we just drilled, we needed to adjust the azimuth and dip for the next shot. And so we were using this data wow. in real time. And it was because we were so desperate and scared to lose our jobs. And so that's how we developed this is in uh, these uh, times where you cannot waste holes and uh, you needed to hit on everyone. I think we'll end off there. And maybe you can give us kind of a forward looking statement for what Oriented Core brings to the table, the gap that it fills, the impact that it can have on refining the understanding of an ore body or an, or an exploration. I think demand will increase over time. I mean, really, the, the bottom line is that we need to get more value out of the core drilling investment. And so what that means is better data, data that we can trust and the ability to create a good geological map instead of just plain connect the dots on cross sections. We need vectors. And so since structure controls so many of the things that geologists care about, in exploration, like geochemistry, alteration, even geophysical anomalies. Those things don't just go poof in the Earth's, Earth's crust. They're controlled by permeability that was open at the time of the hydrothermal events. So if we have a chance to understand and map those things, we believe that the industry is waking up to the idea that that's an investment worth making. That's great. Well, I feel your excitement and I share in your excitement. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today, Chris. All right. Thanks so much for the invite. Really appreciate it. 
Let's go back to the floor for a few more comments that relate to our next guest. Collecting metrics when it comes to descent times, ascent times, and collecting all of that, all of that data and being able to provide that to our clients to prove our performance and to prove the productivity of our products. Oh, I would change the data that is being collected and how it's being collected because there's a lot of missing data sets that could be filled in by measure while drilling. So around water, not just depth of water where it's encountered, but also loss of water pressures. I think integrating software and digital solutions in order to track performance, increase productivity and work, you know, with the drilling contractors and their partners in order to have direct communication, instant feedback for invoicing, performance and all that sort of stuff. I think maybe just easing or improving some of the communication between all the different companies and stakeholders and whatnot. My name is Jody Conner and I'm the founder of Corex Analytics, which is a software company helping build software solutions for drilling, drilling contractors, as well as the mining companies. My background is not software or technology. My background is mechanical engineering. And I've had a career of over 20 years in the oil and gas industry building automated drilling equipment. How did you get into the software side of things? How did you make that transition? Yeah, great question. A lot of it is from, you know, anyone who's running a business and trying to make sense of their data and and analyze it you know, sees the need for a software or a tool to help them do that. I mean, you know, everyone knows Excel, everyone's used Excel. Excel is not a database. Repeat that again. Excel is not a database. We've all used it that way. We've all used it as an analytical tool and it's quick, it's easy, and it helps people do it, but there's no, there's no normalization to it. There's no consistency and there's a lot of room for error. Every spreadsheet I create, I find a a cell or a column that I've made an error with, and I'm sure everyone can relate to that. So when you're doing that, you're constantly building reports and doing that, you you sense a need for something to help you do it on a more consistent basis. And that's really where Crux came from. I was sick and tired of constantly aggregating data from multiple data sources into an Excel spreadsheet just so I could run a monthly report. And it would take me weeks. What we try to do is make that take people five minutes, you know, here's the data, it's gone through a process, it's been approved, and here's the tool and away you go. And you don't have to think about how do I get the data there? How do I marry it to this, to that, to figure out how do I invoice? You know, what what was the cost of the job today? It's easy, it's at your fingertips, it's immediate. So that's really where the idea came from and then just took my technical knowledge to help execute. So what gap does Crux fill in the drilling workflow from service provider and drilling through to the client? Yeah. So what we provide right now is a lot of transparency. So right now the driller would fill out a paper sheet, paper that can be called plot, timesheet, daily shift report, depending on where in the world you are. But basically the driller writes down what he's done, how many meters he's drilled, and how he spent his time throughout the day. Both sides have to enter that into whatever systems that they're currently using and then go to further analysis. So you have one single source of data that's now being entered into multiple systems and there's room for error right there. So what we do is we have an app that lets the drillers tell you what they're doing. It submits it into the portal. They can review it on both sides, approve it, and it also automatically calculates all of the contract rates. So basically you're approving your invoices on a daily basis, which makes the transparency Amazing. Everyone knows where their costs are at or their revenue, depending on which side of the equation you're on. But it also makes billing reconciliation at the end of the month. It helps you get paid faster. It helps, you know, manage your track, your costs and all that stuff. So it really, really helps immediately that way. 
Furthermore, though, what it does is it's now normalized that data into a platform that you can now run analysis on your business. So what's the health of my business? How much does it cost me to drill? How much am I making when I'm drilling? How much money am I not making when I'm on standby? So it really starts to let you now manage your business and gives you historical data to do that with. But the the next piece of that is where you go to your customer and your driller are looking at the same data. So no longer do you have someone saying to you, well, you're spending eight hours drilling or you're doing this for too long. You have the same data. So now you're just talking about how do we make it better? So it really changes that conversation, right? Rather than being thrown into the fire with numbers you don't know, you know the numbers. Yeah, I mean, being informed with quantitative data is definitely one of the soapboxes that I like to, to stand on. So uh, definitely all for that. I'm just curious, though, you know, I mean, the, the resources sector is sometimes difficult to change. Or How do you find that the, the drillers, because I mean, I imagine it's the drillers boots on the ground who are actually using the software and everything relies on them to be entering data correctly. So how have you found that adoption process? We've actually found it fairly well, but I would, I would say that that's because we went to the drillers and worked with the drillers to build the software. So we're saving them time. We're making it easy to enter reports. And so we're finding that adoption really good. But I think it's also because we knew that that user experience had to be really good. And to that, you know, we also created the product, you know, the app, the software to do all these things, but we're actually going to take it another level. We're actually going to try to help the driller automatically fill out his reports. The drills themselves, you know, if you think about technology, you look at oil and gas, they're 20 years ahead of the mining industry. You have fully automated rigs with the driller sitting in a chair with a couple joysticks. Well, that driller is driving the rig with those joysticks. All the data exists to tell you what the drill is doing. So why do we need to have the manual input anyway? And so that's what Crux is now embarking on, is now taking that next step and even reducing the workload of the drillers. Hmm. This is just for my own curiosity. The time that I've spent on the drill rig, a lot of it was manual. I mean, it was literally pouring fluids you know, down, down the hole or different mud mixtures. When it comes to automated drilling, all of that is done in an automated way? So automated drilling right now in the mineral space is still coming. It's up and coming. It's new technology, but it's old technology when you look at other industries. And so the cost has always been why it hasn't shown up in the mining sector. I mean, your rate of return on investment is a lot slower than it is in oil and gas, right? You have a bigger resource, you have a bigger time frame, you have a lot of other things. So your return on investment, it's not, it's never going to get shorter, but it will get shorter as the costs get, get down, right? So taking another step forward is giving you all of that real-time data to then take to make more business decisions is the drill effectively working? Can I use it to train new drillers? Can I use it to detect the rock properties that I'm drilling through? How hard is the rock I'm drilling through right now? If I can tell that based off of my weight on bit or the feedback coming, maybe that could alter my decisions while I'm drilling. And so that's really where we're trying to get to and and the outcomes we're looking for. I think as, as geologists, we're very interested to hear about predicting rock type or validating your predicted stratigraphy based on behavior of the drill. So can you maybe elaborate a little bit on that, provide some detail as to what parts of the drilling process or whether it's the consumables that are used that could be tracked to predict 
rock properties. Yeah. We actually think the biggest, the biggest players in here is going to be how much weight is on bit, what bit you're using. And obviously between those two things, you're going to get a rate of penetration. So there will be variables within all three of those things that are going to give us some value there. Consumables as well, because your rate of penetration can absolutely be affected by the viscosity of the mud in the hole, how much, et cetera. So there's a lot of different factors. And so what we're embarking on is starting to track those factors. So consumables alongside the drilling parameters to start to build correlations or understand how they are affecting the performance. And then you also have to layer in, like you said, from the geology side, we need to layer in those components to understand how they affect how they're drilling through those zones. So we're really at the, you know, very heavy in R&D in spending the time and the money and the effort to build the underlying models that could potentially get us to those predictive type qualities. We have three pilot projects working right now, one with a resource company, one with a driller, and one uh, with a rig manufacturer. So looking at all different three sides of the equation, how can we build better data? How can we build these models? And so really working on, on a lot of those exciting projects. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I would imagine that tracking this kind of data works both ways. So in order for that data to be useful, you need to have consistency, which can be really difficult between drillers, between shifts, you know, between helpers even. But then again, collecting that data allows you to start standardizing across different drillers and different shifts, well, and, I would imagine. And I think, I think you know, like we, we hit about rock properties, obviously play a part two, right? Geographically, where are you drilling and stuff like that? But then it's drill types, right? You've got different drills that are on the surface to underground to different drilling methods, right? You look at RC drilling versus core diamond drilling. So there's a lot of different parameters in here. And, you know, no one knows the answer for sure, but we all have basic mechanical knowledge that we can start to build data sets to do that. And I know we're kind of going backwards here a little bit, but is the idea that the drill company, they install the instrumentation in order to monitor XYZ? And is that fed by Wi-Fi to a laptop or like, what does the actual workflow look like? Yeah. So you either buy a drill that's already fully instrumented or you could instrument a drill yourself through a partnership with a manufacturing company. There is one piece of hardware that we will put on there that does the network capability. So what it'll do is speak to our app that you'll have on another device on site. And that's how the data comes through Wi-Fi. So if you have connectivity, you could potentially have real live streaming data. If you don't have connectivity, you would have the data second by second once you come into service. Mm. So you would still have a local network where the driller could actually see the driller's console and see true feedback of how he's handling his controls would give him instant feedback and read on what his torque and his rate of penetration, all those values are. So even from a baseline, the driller actually starts to have more knowledge or just more visibility on how the controls are affecting the performance. Maybe I'll end with one one last question, which is, you know, where do you see Crux going in the next five years? And, and where do you see drilling going in the minerals industry? Yeah. So in the next five years, I really see the mineral industry catching up in technology. I mean, like I mentioned before, the costs are coming down. The economic value of this and feasibility is now there. And, you know, I think drilling has been really the last process in mining to get technology. I mean, you talk about underground mines that are fully operated from a guy in a, in a chair on surface. Why can't we run the drills that way too? So I think the technology and the appetite is there now. So I really see the mining space taking that and even probably taking it another step forward because they have the advantage of coming in after 
and already knowing the do's and don'ts that have happened from other industries in this in this thing. And I see Crux is facilitating that process and being there to support them along the way on the software and the tools that help make that data usable. Anyone can collect data, anyone can show you data, but you need it to be usable to provide you value. And that is where Crux comes in. And that's, you know, our saying, information into insight. Anyone can collect information, it's what you do with it that makes it valuable. Okay, that's <laughs> that was a great way to end. Actually, yeah. I like that. I'm going to read that down. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for talking to us about Crux. Great to have you on the podcast. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on the Discovery to Recovery podcast. I'm Aisha, one of the hosts of this podcast series. You can access past episodes on segweb.org backslash podcasts. Be sure to follow the SEG and ALS Goldspot on Twitter, LinkedIn, and other social media channels to get notified when the next episode comes out. A huge thank you to our speakers today, Kevin Schlemko, Chris Brown, and Jody Conrad, who generously gave us their time and insight for this podcast. This episode was written and produced by myself, Aisha, of Tech Resources, with editing support from Anne Thompson, Hallie Keevil, Sam Weatherly, Britt Blumel, and Anne Kukowitz. Our theme music is Confluence by Eastwinds from their album Confluence. You can check them out at eastwinds.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening to this week's episode, and we'll catch you again next week. In 50 years from now, you won't be doing any drilling at all. There'll be other technology to get you what you need.